Hey everyone, Aisha and Mayhem here, and we're really excited to bring you a special video, our first video from Macrovisor, and we're talking about, is the bear market rally nearing its end? Pleasure to have you on, Aisha. Thank you, Mayhem. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed this new format that we have for you. So we're going to be showing you a couple of slides <clears throat> to look and really dig into what's going on in the market right now. And then we talk about where we think things are headed a little bit and um, what the macro picture is actually telling us. Absolutely. This is going to be a lot of fun. So let's dive right in. The first slide we have, the most shorted stocks have been leading the market higher. And this is a phenomenon that concerns us both because when you see if we were in, which we don't think we are, but if you see a bull market starting, you want to see more quality leadership and wider breadth of upside participation. And certainly you don't want to see high beta factors and particularly most shorted stocks and long duration risk leading in an environment where rates are rising and this sort of stuff, where we are in the cycle and what's happening with the uh, global tightening by most central banks, this is not the sort of thing that should lead. If anything, this is, as we can see on the chart here, very suggestive of a high degree of short covering. And Aisha, we've talked about this off mic a bit, that really these are the sorts of things that you just, you don't want to see. It's not confidence inspiring to see, you know, these unprofitable growth in tech and biotech and other types of stocks leading the market higher and the higher quality components that actually make money not really performing some of the more defensive stuff even down year to date what do you make of this sure so when you're looking at shorted stocks it's obviously the stocks that most people are bearish about or have a negative sentiment about right that's why the market is heavily short these stocks because they believe that the prices will eventually go down and therefore they're taking a short position in these stocks um ahead of time so when you see the most so what goldman sachs does is basically they take a basket of these most shorted stocks and they put them together and form a kind of index. It's not really a tradable index, but it's kind of an index, right? And that's what we're seeing in this red line here. So when we see this increasing to this extent, when we see the price of this pseudo index, let's say, increasing to this extent, it only tells us one thing. It tells us that, you know, the leadership in the market is from as Mayhem rightly pointed out, from the weakest stocks, right? So it's the stocks that people are most negative on. And that's not exactly what we want to see. So I don't think this is the mark of, an healthy, of a healthy market. Agreed. Absolutely well said. Short covering has been a leading driver of gains in tech. As we see on screen, this short covering rally, well, it's kind of reminiscent to what we had seen in early 2021. Everyone remembers this that was in the market back then. Unprofitable growth, tech, SPACs, EV companies, Chinese stuff. It was all getting bid up to, as retail likes to say, the moon. 
and it did not end well when that bout of short covering finally abated. We can see on the chart here, hedge funds started to go aggressively short the same stuff, and they made out like bandits because these things were getting priced to extremes, 50 to 100 times sales for companies that, well, their future was uncertain and the path to profitability was quite clouded as well. Some of these companies may never be profitable that were bid up so aggressively. So seeing those kinds of extremes tells us something that bank research now is suggesting that over $300 billion worth of shorts have been covered to start this year, leaving very little left to cover at this point. This part of the upside is likely over. There's simply not enough short exposure to drive the market significantly higher based on what we're seeing. And this goes back to what Aisha was saying in the sense that when you see this kind of leadership, and now we can quantify with data that it's low quality and it's driven by short covering and not just accumulation of shares, that's not a, that's not a healthy sign. That's not a sign of robust upside participation. And in fact, we can look around in other areas and say, well, money market accounts are now paying over 4%. There's over $6 trillion parked there. Cash is actually a competitor to equities now. Cash is not trash. And so it's not money coming off of the supposed sidelines to enter the market. Instead, there's a lot of short covering that's happening in this particular part of the market. We'll get to the other components of this rally and what's driving it momentarily. But before we do, Aisha, I wanted to hand it over to you as well, because we've talked about this phenomenon, how this short covering, this episodic sort of manias are driven often in these lower quality parts of the market by factors that are not good to see. And in this sense, this is the most powerful short covering rally we've seen in tech stocks since that heady early 2021 period. And that kind of tells me this time isn't different. What do you think? Yeah, it would seem that people haven't really learned their lesson. So we saw what happened in early 2021 when we had this mania of, you know, stocks being squeezed higher and not not the right kind of stocks, right? And uh, there were a lot of people who jumped in on the bandwagon and they were left holding the bag, as we say, higher. So um, yeah, we saw the situation with GameStop. We saw the situation with AMC, and you know they they started buying at a time when the price had already moved up way too much. And then when the price came crashing down, they couldn't sell them fast enough. And so they're still holding. Some people are still holding this at so GME, for example, at three hundred, two hundred dollars per share, which is. Um, insane. Um, And I don't know if they will ever be able to recover their money. I don't know if they will ever be able to see that price ever again. Uh, Even in this current scenario where we are seeing short covering, where we are seeing options play, we're still not seeing those prices in these stocks, right? So even though we are seeing the market rally higher, it's nowhere close to what Um, people would expect out of these stocks. Like the prices have still not reached where people would want them to reach. Absolutely right. And, And that's something that should concern folks because the other thing that suggests is there's a lot of trapped buyers 
that are going to be motivated sellers. The higher we go, the more they will pile in to push this stuff down. Folks that bought these things at higher prices are very likely to say, you know what? I'm going to take this smaller loss. I've been given the gift of being able to take into this strength. And that's something that creates a lot of resistance. Next up, global equities have also seen intense short covering, the most we've seen since 2016. In this view, we can see that a lot of de-risking on the short side of the books of hedge funds has happened throughout global equity exposure. This is something that, again, suggests that we are not in a very good place with this market where so much of this short covering is happening in such a short time. And quite frankly, when you see episodes like this, and this is one of the drivers of upside, it leads me to look at things with a very cautionary view. And this was one of the drivers that we saw for the rally in early February, this intense, intense short covering reaching a crescendo moment. So this is one of those drivers for upside that, you know, we got to be just a little bit wary of as market participants, because when you see such intense short covering across such a breadth of different equities, it also suggests that that upside, the ability for that upside to continue is constrained. Quite frankly, when you see short covering of this magnitude, it's a very big warning sign because once it abates, it does leave room for these same folks to start to say, you know what? I think things are getting a little bit expensive here. Perhaps it's time to start to get short again. Aisha, what do you think? So this actually interests me quite a lot because um, if you remember last week, I wrote an article on Europe and how Europe has been extremely strong over the past couple of weeks, right? The European equities have been surging. Some of them, some of the uh, indices, some of the companies, some of the ETFs have actually wiped out all the losses that, you know, they incurred in 2022. So the market in Europe has been extremely bullish over the last couple of weeks. And this is actually a good thing or a good explanation to that as well, right? Uh, part of my explanation was that um, uh, estimates had been taken down massively, which is as well true. Um, so I think after everything that's happened in Europe in the past year, um, you know, the conflict and um, the lack of uh, natural gas, oil, um, and all these issues that Europe has faced over the last one year, basically tells us that, you know, the analysts sort of re-rated these companies downwards. And when they did, their estimates were probably taken down way too much. And over the last couple of months, what we've seen is some recovery in terms of the prices of natural gas and some recovery in terms of, you know, retail spending and all of that. So my view was and still remains that a a lot of the bullishness comes from the fact that you know we're going through earning seasons there, earning season there as well, and because of uh, the inordinate amount of beats, these companies have actually been rallying. But this is very telling as well. If global equities are also being uh, you know driven up by short covering, then this could explain a little bit more about why the short or why the market Markets have been bullish for longer than we've expected. I mean, you've got to love that the CAC hit an all-time high, right? 
Well, it's a good uh, good place to be right now because, you know, it can only go down from here. <laughs> exactly. We wee baguette. So next up, we've got retail short covering. Um, Next up, we have retail market participation showing an extreme. And I think this is important to watch because we can see the amount of daily net inflows exceeding that of the prior bear market rallies. And yet the market's upside not saying the same thing. And this is a bit of a theme. It's not just retail where we're seeing this. And what this tells me is we're running out of upside ammunition. The, the fact that we're seeing retail, and it's not just retail, and we will get into that a little bit more later on, but the fact that we're seeing such extreme upside participation suggests that, well, things are getting a little tired, that a lot of the folks who are waiting to get involved with the market have gotten involved in, in a rather extreme way. And when we see this level of net inflows with the backdrop of short covering, and of course, we've also got CTAs and managed money getting very long, which we'll talk about shortly, it suggests that a lot of the firepower that could have driven the market higher has already driven the market higher. And that's a bit of a concern if we're looking for reasons to stay long and say there's more upside to come. When you see this driven by factors that are already getting stretched, it's not very encouraging, though it does help to explain why we've seen a market that has been so resilient in the face of bad news from companies, from the economy, and quite frankly, uh, people just willing to ignore a lot of that stuff as the market churns higher. So this is a chart that caught my attention. I think I originally found it on Market Watch, but it's very interesting because of just how stretched this upside participation has become and yet how little the market has moved in relation to it. What do you make of this, Aisha? This is certainly interesting and um, it's quite odd as well because I think retail is sort of jumping the gun here. So they're not convinced that uh, October was in the low, uh, or sorry, they're not convinced that, you know, we were going to make new lows. They're, they're rather convinced that October was the low. And I think a lot of the trading activity that we've been seeing, I think we see some of that on Twitter. We see some of the sentiment coming out of Twitter. Um, and it's Twitter is actually a great sentiment gauge in that respect, right? We get to see what everybody thinks. And because, you know, our accounts, you know, span quite a few different categories of, you know, retail investors, we get to see how people are thinking. And most people are just sort of jumping the gun here, thinking that October was the low put in by the market and that things can't get any worse. Unfortunately, the way we've been saying this and the way we've been warning about, you know, the earnings recession and the earnings recession is just beginning. We still haven't seen GDP numbers go down enough. We spoke about this quite a lot last time around. And um, now we know that the Fed is looking to tighten more. So I think everything considered, um, you know, saying that the October low was the bottom of the market is a little premature. 
And I think, you know, retail jumping in with net inflows into equities at this point um, could be a disastrous situation. It could end up that, you know, the market goes another leg lower and these guys are stuck yet again because we know that plenty of these retail investors were beaten down heavily in 2022. A lot of them are sitting on large, large losses, and they haven't been able to recoup any of that. So um, it's a scary situation, no doubt. And I think a little caution is warranted here, at least for the audience that we reach. And, you know, it's interesting because what's happened since October, we've seen that deterioration in earnings. We've seen a deterioration in leading economic indicators. We've seen the expectations for the Fed getting more aggressive, as you said, rise. And we've seen some signs that inflation isn't going to abate quite at the pace that we were hoping for. And that October low happened during a CPI print. And a lot of the expectation there was, oh, we're seeing the the worst. The worst is now behind us. And that might not be true. What's being priced in, and not on screen, but something I'll mention, is a lack of any recession either. The idea that we're going to have this sort of no landing scenario. And I think people are confusing what no landing means. Because to me, when I think of no landing, I think of a plane that doesn't actually land properly, not a plane that stays elevated at 3,000 feet and continues to move forward. And this is a big concern because when we look at some of the other data that we're seeing from retail here, it's extraordinary. These inflows that we have right now are larger than what we saw during the manias in 2020 and 2021, as well as early 2022. That's really scary to me because it suggests that folks are really aggressively long, very bullish into a market that's likely just experiencing a leg higher due to bear market counter trend bounces from short covering, from institutional participation, from some of the zero DTE mania that we've talked about, as well as from managed money and CTAs. But if everyone is long, who's left to get long? And that's something that I think is is a big concern for us watching this market. And really, our goal here at Macrovisor, one of the things that we really want to do for our audience is provide leading, thoughtful, in-depth research that isn't part of the consensus view. We want to look at this from a much more detail-oriented perspective and try to put all these pieces together so that everyone out there who's in our audience, and we appreciate every single one of you, has the advantage of this information for their strategy, for how they might approach the market, if it fits their risk parameters, if this information is helpful, then that's great. That's our goal here. That's what we really want to do. But Aisha, you posted this chart earlier today as well, and I think it's a really important one for folks to digest because we're zooming out, right? The last chart was very tight. It was in a small range of, of time. But when we zoom out, we can see this is nothing short of absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely. and uh, But I think we also need to take note of the fact that since 2020, we've had a lot more retail investors pile into the market in general, right? So sort of uh, the nature of the market or the nature of the beast has changed a little bit. So we're seeing a lot more retail participation since the pandemic. Part of it had to do with the stimulus. Part of it had to do with the fact that people were at home. And they had more time to sort of research and get into the market. 
Um, I know for a fact, a lot of people pulled their money from um, money managers and started managing their own portfolio, right? Which is all well and good if they actually learn something. But what we're seeing now is a situation where the conditions of 2021 and 2020, late 2020 and throughout 2021 um, are not being replicated, right? We have a situation where the conditions are totally different. We have a situation where rates are much higher, much higher. Um, we have a situation where liquidity is much lower and coming off by the day. I know we've had an anomaly in the last one month, and I'm sure we're going to discuss that in a little bit. But nevertheless, the overall situation is much tighter. So I know financial conditions have eased over the last month or so or last two months, but that's no reason to completely ignore what's happened over the last one year. Um, yeah, one year. So February 2022 was when we saw the market really plummet, right, for the first time. I think that was February 2022. And since then, um, you know, the market went into a bear market and we're seeing much tighter conditions and a much more difficult path forward as well with higher inflation, lower growth, lower liquidity, and higher rates. So I think the fact that we are seeing a comeback in terms of retail investors, and if you look at this chart and zoom out and you think, oh, okay, so 2021 and 2022 also had a lot of retail participation, but it's not the same anymore because conditions have changed, and that's something we need to take into account. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good point because I know a lot of folks like to sort of ignore the macro or say it doesn't matter, ignore the fundamentals as well. But the reality is they both matter and eventually they are both priced in and we're not seeing that. And so, you know, for people that are traders that are more sophisticated operators in the market, they're looking at things like this and, and they're, you know, licking their chops because this is an extraordinary short opportunity. I mean, let's be real. If you're a sophisticated trader and you see everything we've talked about so far, we're not even close to done with this presentation, but just this so far suggests, wow, there's a lot of opportunities to capitalize on the short side. And if one's long to raise cash before a next potential leg down can really wipe a lot of this out. And I like where you were headed when you were talking about how much things have changed, because that's so important for people to consider. I like how you say, you know, if you're a smart investor, you would, or a smart trader, you would think about shorting this market. Well, Carl Icahn did just that, right? He went ahead and he bought puts on the market. And there's a reason he did that is because he's seen all of this from that perspective. And he's a man who does look at the macro. He, he is, you know, for lack of a better word, a macro trader. Yes. And he's done very well uh, oh, employing those strategies. Um, so if he is short this market or he is thinking that this market is going to go down, I would tend to believe someone like him. I can see what he's looking at. And uh, I have to agree. I think uh, Uncle Carl is on top of his game. He used to be a seller of puts when he thought the market was getting extended to the downside. And he was right. Every time he sold puts, it was near or at a bottom. Now, 
he's a buyer of puts. And that's telling us that Uncle Carl thinks there's more downside to come. And that sort of, um, let's call it validation of our thesis from one of the most sophisticated investors and traders that we've seen, it does mean something. And I think it's worth noting that he has a very good track record. Next up, retail participation has elevated to over 20% of all market volume. This is another sign that just puts the other charts into context because the other charts were really looking at inflows in terms of the amount of capital deployed. Now we're looking at the composition of market volume by retail. They're not participating as much in the options market, but they are participating a lot more in terms of the volume of shares being accumulated. When folks ask, well, how do we know this isn't selling? Well, because the vast majority of data we get suggests this is people getting longer and longer, in some cases with leverage as well. And I fear that a lot of folks are being used as exit liquidity here. We have not only retail, as you mentioned, with a lot of unrealized losses from 2022 and even 2021, we also have a lot of institutions, large banks with significant unrealized losses from 2022. The last reading from quarter three of 2022, and we'll get the update from FDIC on March 1st for quarter four, but the last reading for quarter three was close to $700 billion of unrealized losses. Now, as those losses become smaller, folks are likely to want to realize them at smaller levels. That is to say, if you have an opportunity to exit a position that has not been doing well and at one point was very distressed, and now you're able to realize a smaller loss, well, Many savvy folks would be doing exactly that, raising cash into strength that doesn't make sense with the macro or fundamental backdrop. And I think that's something that we are beginning to see more of. And Aisha, I'm curious of your thoughts here. I mean, looking at this chart, we can see that this has happened before, but the last time it happened, as you've said, was during totally different conditions. This time, it's happening almost flying in the face, fighting central bank policy fighting this idea that indeed, maybe things are actually different this time, but not the way that people think, but different in the sense that this is not a new bull market as it was the last time we saw these types of inflows. No, absolutely. And I think this is something that we've been discussing, right? So uh, I, I think I recounted my story of, you know, 2008, when, you know, after the global financial crisis or the great financial crisis, rather. Um, and I saw 2009 when I saw all my friends, you know, getting fired, left, right, and center. And those of us who remained, we tried to do anything, anything legal, right? To make money, to make our targets. We were smaller teams. Targets were, you know, almost the same. And it was a tougher situation. And I think most of these banks went through exactly that in 2022. Something to remember is most of the portfolio managers now were, <laughs> who've come of age didn't actually see 2008, 2009. And so last year when they were hit by this bear market, it was something completely new for them. And I think navigating those markets had become like an enormous challenge. So I'm quite sure. And the other thing about this is most of the world is long, right? Yes. Most of the portfolios are long only. Most hedge funds are long only. And therefore, a lot of these guys were, you know, left, um, you know, holding onto big, big losses. And we've seen that, as you've rightly pointed out, with these unrealized losses at the banks. Um, 
and they're, they're trying to do anything to keep their jobs because now we're in a situation where jobs are being cut, right? And so therefore, they will do anything to try and save their jobs. And for people out there that are listening to Aisha talk about this, it's important to understand that she comes from a background of nearly two decades of corporate banking experience. She's seen these cycles play out from a point of view that most people have not. And that's really that's really why I appreciate your insight and your candor here, because we don't often get to talk to people that were on the inside during this type of a crisis situation. So what you're sharing is very valuable. That the banking system, when you're talking about dealing with these large unrealized losses, unrealized losses that, by the way, are larger than where they were at the height of the great financial crisis, this is important. Banks may be willing to take extraordinary measures to try to recoup as much of that as they can, and some of those unrealized losses are indeed in equity exposure. So retail may just be exit liquidity for some of these folks, and we do see some outflows at the institutional level happening within parts of the market where there's these concentrated gains, including tech. And so let's just talk a little bit about what retail are buying. This is a chart from MarketWatch. And, uh, you know, I got to say, I'm just I'm blown away that that over nine billion dollars of retail funds, close to 10 went into Tesla, which is up 73.9% year-to-date. It's also one of the leaders in terms of options participation. There's more Tesla options premium and volume changing hands than Apple, Microsoft, Amazon combined, which is extraordinary. And it's about 7% of all options volume right now. So we can say that, yes, Tesla had some reason to rebound a bit. Their earnings weren't as bad as expected. Some could even call them better. But that doesn't mean that the stock should be re-rated almost 100% higher in two months. That That is an extraordinary reaction. And to me, it smacks of exactly what we saw in 2021, where there was a persistent delta squeeze, or what that means is folks were buying near to the money, close dated or even zero DTE options. And this was a lot of institutional participation. So don't get me wrong. It wasn't just retail sort of FOMOing into Tesla calls. But that left a giant pocket of hot air. And we saw similar episodes in Upstart, Asana, Affirm, Cloudflare, and other companies back then that were sort of the hedge fund hotels being led up by these Delta squeezes as well. I don't think this time is different, but what really worries me about this is seeing that much, $10 billion or so of retail capital being deployed into a stock during an options-driven mania. A lot of this capital, in my opinion, is at risk. And we see also familiar themes from what we saw during 2021, whereas these tech companies are the biggest areas where retail is allocating capital, and yet it's unlikely that they're going to return to the glory days that we saw from, say, 2012 to 2021. That period is likely behind us, first because if a new bull market is emerging, which I don't think it is, but eventually one will, it's almost always different leadership that leads the way. And in an environment where inflation has become more structural, where rates are likely to stay higher for longer, and where you know the Fed may continue to run off their balance sheet even the next time they cut, that's something they've discussed, that doesn't suggest that long-duration risk is going to be the outperformer. That suggests that old economy stocks are likely to outperform, and we don't see a single one of these on this list. What do you make of this, Aisha? It's rather extraordinary, isn't it? 
It is indeed. And um, it's a little troubling as well, because this part of the cycle is where defensive stocks these stocks kind of fall into defensive territory like Apple, for example, because it's been now, you know, Apple has become like the safety stock for the market. But I think some of the other stocks are still quite speculative and um, not supposed to be the ones leading the market, as we've just pointed out. And so it is a little troubling and it's troubling more so because I don't think something like this actually lasts. And it's exactly what you said um, a little while ago in terms of exit liquidity. These banks will, you know, at some point pull the plug and get out. And this is how they're going to get out. So what you're saying is Carvana and C3 AI and Tesla are not the new paradigm leadership for this supposed new bull market. <laughs> well, it depends on how much you believe in the AI phenomenon. I, I will tell you right now, and uh, for folks out there listening, I've got over two decades of experience in technology. I can tell you this AI hype bubble is nothing more than an AI hype bubble. And if you pull up uh, this sort of Gartner expectations versus reality cycle, we're at the point of peak expectations here. People believe that ChatGPT has ushered in this new paradigm. But the reality is, and we can see it with the trouble Microsoft has had with Bing and even OpenAI has had with ChatGPT, this stuff is not ready. AI readily hallucinates things that haven't happened. It, with the right types of prompts, can get into situations where it's actually threatening users or even expressing the desire to break out of the box or out of its rule set. And we can argue that this stuff isn't conscious, that it's all algorithmically driven, and that's true. But the problem is that even the rules that have been created for this stuff aren't working. And its ability to use logic or reason is very limited and, and, and constrained to certain very specific scenarios. And at the end of the day, when we look at AI really being able to reliably pass a Turing test, which is one of the benchmarks for something truly being artificially intelligent, this current iteration of technology isn't really there yet. There are a lot of scenarios where it works, but there are many more where it does not. And I think that's a problem because a lot of the pricing that we've seen in things like C3 AI, Big Bear AI, and, and some of the other uh, SoundHound, you know, sort of companies that are out there in this space where they've enjoyed, you know, like we can see with C3 AI up over 100%, Big Bear was up something like 1,000%. This is irrational. And I understand the optimism. I understand the desire to participate in this and believe it's a new paradigm, but we haven't seen the technology let's say, get to a point, evolve to a point where we can say it's intelligent. Is it artificial? Yes. Do we understand the human brain enough to create a replica of it? No, we do not. We are so far away from that. We're, we're likely more than five years, maybe a decade away, and the technology will get better. But what we're seeing right now, the excitement surrounding this sort of um, generative chat, this, this natural language processing technology is very, very far in excess of where it is in reality. And don't get me wrong, I'm excited about where this stuff can go, but I think we need to dampen our expectations in the short term because there is a lot of risk that we're getting 
very excited collectively speaking for retail as a whole about where things are versus, you know, where they actually are. And we can see that in this sort of upside participation. People are buying C3 AI because not only the stock symbol, but the founder, Tom Siebel, has come out and said things like, oh, we're working on our own version of ChatGPT. And we're, we've got partners like Microsoft and Google. What he's not telling you is they don't have any sort of technology to create that chat GPT type technology. They're saying it's going to come out in March. That's just around the time their earnings come out. They've been a perennial disappointer. The company has a lot of aspirations. They've never really lived up to them. And I don't think that when they're talking about partnerships with Google and Microsoft, people understand that all that means is the company is available on their cloud platform. It doesn't mean there's any kind of exclusive relationship there that portends to a larger business opportunity. So I just wanted to, you know, give a little reality check on this AI stuff because, look, I love technology. I think it's enabled a lot of wonderful things for humanity, but it is a double-edged sword. And it's also something that because a lot of people don't understand the nitty-gritty, we tend to get very excited about it. We've seen that multiple times. We saw it during the dot-com bubble. We saw it during 2020, 2021. This time is not different. Now let's move on to the institutional side of market participation. CTAs are very long, this market. In fact, we're seeing that there really isn't much upside left for this positioning. And this is a big concern because we've already seen the short covering. We've seen the retail upside participation. Now we're seeing some of the institutional upside participation. This is data in U.S. equities, but we see very similar in U.S. futures as well. And so it starts to beg the question, who's left to get long? We know that there's this supposed tranche of money on the sidelines. The money market accounts are flush. But you know what? They actually have been raising money this year. People have been exiting equities and raising money into money market funds, which suggests to me that some of the top 10% of more savvy investors are looking at the strength and saying, you know, those positions I didn't close out in 2022, I'm going to close them out here. And I think that's important to see that some of the the probably more experienced money, the higher net worth investors that have been at this game for a while, are beginning to head for the exits. Aisha, what do you make of this? Because I think this just sort of further adds to the narrative that, indeed, there's so many folks that are long that the boat is starting to tip to one side, right? When everyone's kind of on the same page, that usually means there's not a lot of upside left. Absolutely. So uh, this is a really, really interesting chart. And, you know, it, it shows how the risk is to the downside now. So what we're seeing is a very stretched market, market stretched to the upside. And so if you look at risk parity, then the only other option right now is for the market to go down. So it is actually quite scary. It's, it's a very informative chart and it is quite scary. Absolutely. And I've got another one to add to this that I think helps to drive the point home that we're both making, which is that, you know, the upside from here is extremely limited. And the downside suggests there's over $100 billion worth of CTA selling. And this is just CTAs. We're not talking about retail. We're not talking about managed money. We're just talking about CTAs. And you can see on the chart here, you know, maybe we've got a little more room 
for upside under normal market conditions of sort of going sideways. If we do move much higher, there's a little room for them to add maybe $18 billion of exposure. But if we start to realize more significant downside, Goldman put out a note on Friday saying that we're already at the trigger point for these folks to start to sell. Well, they've got, uh, looking at the chart here, close to $140 billion worth of exposure to let go which would certainly add to downside pressure. And I think that helps to drive the point home that you're making that there's just not a lot of room for upside from these CTAs. Another chart we've got here, this is from the NAAIM survey, the National Association of Active Investment Managers. They sure are long. In fact, just if we don't look at last week's data, this is the most long that they've been since spring of 2022 during that counter trend bear market rally. And this has been a really reliable indicator to fade. I mean, if you're a a swing trader, extremes in managed money have been some of the best things to bet against, right? When they get super bearish like they were in late September, that was a good opportunity to look at going long for swings, just like when they get super bold up, as they have during the spring-summer bear market rallies and this bear market rally, as well as even, you could argue, the winter bear market rally. Those were opportunities to let go of some risk and potentially take some short positions against them. And let's talk a little bit more about this. The last three times we saw managed money this long, it ended poorly, right? And we could see that on the chart. NAAIM exposure, the last chart we were just looking, now a line chart on the bottom. And then we have the S&P in red and skew in black. And you might ask, why did I put skew here? The reason skew is on this chart is to show the hedging that institutions are putting on to lower their value at risk so that they can get longer. So folks are really long. This doesn't suggest that we're in a well-hedged market. When you see the market moving up with skew, what it suggests is people are piling into long positions, and we can qualify that view by looking at NAAIM. Will this time be different? It's possible, but I doubt it. Because what we've just established here is that this rally is kind of reliant on four different things so far. Short covering, retail getting long, CTAs getting long, and managed money getting long during the sort of air pocket of central bank liquidity that's entering the market. None of that suggests a durable upside phenomenon. What it does suggest is that there's a lot of people here that are very optimistic about where the market is going to go, and yet there aren't that many people left to buy and push it higher. Aisha, what do you think about this? Because this has been part of our ongoing conversation about some of the extremes that we've been seeing, and I just think it's fascinating. It is fascinating indeed. And looking at this chart, it's pretty clear that, you know, when managed money, CTAs, retail, everyone gets very, very long, we're due for some sort of a correction, right? And I think we've been pushing this market higher and higher. We've seen a little bit of that correction come in over the last couple of days but not enough. So we're still above um, the 4,000 mark on the S&P. And this is not at all where we thought we would be uh, at this point in time, right? We thought we'd be much lower. Our, or rather, my target for the S&P this year is between 3,200 and 3,400. And so if you compare that to where we are right now at 4,000, 
we're, you know, significantly far away from that mark. Now, I don't think that we reach 3,200 immediately, but I do think there should be a pathway towards that. And we were taking the path towards that in December, and suddenly the market just decided to rally in January. Now, we do know that usually we do have a little bit of bullishness in January. That It's a seasonal factor. But at the same time, I think we've pushed the seasonal factor long enough. And now it would seem it's it's quite like, you know, holding um, a beach ball underwater, right? So we're pushing it down so much and then at one point when when we remove our hand it's just going to um jump up so and i think in this case it doesn't jump up it jumps down so the market is will probably jump down and i think that's a really good point and and it's something that a lot of folks are not really looking at it from the longer term perspective and we have to right if we are long term investors which we both are we want to be able to strategically allocate into parts of the market that we believe will at least perform, if not outperform, over months and years. It's hard to make that kind of allocation in this environment because everything is objectively overpriced that we look at. There are very few pockets that seem reasonably valued. Most of them are in the more defensive parts of the market that have been marked down this year. But when we take a bigger picture view, the fact is that Aisha and I are not naturally bearish people. And anyone who's had a realistic view of this market has been chastised for it by folks who are very long and probably have never seen a real bear market before. And let's be clear, 2020, that brief pocket of downside that lasted about a month, that was not a real bear market. Neither was 2018, the sort of tightening tantrum that we saw in December. That was also not a real bear market. A real bear market looks like 2008 to 2009 or what we saw during the dot-com bust, or some of those that came prior. These are grinding drops in the market that last usually periods of many months, if not years, and there are a lot of head fakes along the way. There were a lot of, quote, new bull markets, unquote, after the dot-com bust. In fact, I think there were at least three or four new bull markets in the NASDAQ. None of them ended up being actually real. We sold off to lower lows. We saw similar during the great financial crisis. And even, you know, people on TV talking heads were saying, oh, this is the end of it. The feds, you know, got ahead of this. We're, we're going to be just fine. You know, and, and we heard, by the way, the term soft landing bantered by the media and the Fed during the dot-com bust before it really hit during 2007 leading up to the great financial crisis, and we're hearing it again now. Now, what does soft landing really mean? What it means is that people are trying to manage expectations. That's what it really means, that no one wants to call for a bad recession or bear market because they believe that that will foment it, that that that, that sort of will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So this is all about expectations management. A soft landing is the idea that we have some downside in the economy and we have some downside in the stock market, but it's not so bad. But really what's happening with that mantra, which has been bantered about almost every time proving not to be true is expectations management. I think it's important to differentiate what people are saying versus what we really see. Next up, this is another theme that we've been covering that just really is jaw-dropping. And this chart goes back, boy, what is it here, about 12 years. And it shows that 50% of SPX options, 
are being traded to expire the same day. We've never seen anything like this, and this is part of our ongoing coverage, and the reason it's included in this presentation is because this is another leg of this unsustainable rally. Lots of short-dated participation, largely to the upside, in SPX, and if you're trading this, you can see it. You have this sort of bad news come out. Maybe it's Microsoft earnings. Maybe it's an econometric that suggests inflation is hotter. Maybe it's something else. But these buyers of SPX calls, same day near to the money, they're able to push up the market with a high degree of leverage. And they're able to do so closing out those positions the same day. And a lot of this is institutional. I know the media narrative has been, oh, retail is gambling at the casino again. But the reality is the vast majority of this options activity, over 80%, is institutional in nature. Now, here's where it gets staggering. Over $1 trillion a day of notional is exchanging hands in the options market to expire the same day. And half a trillion of that is in SPX alone. So these charts are absolutely jaw-dropping. I'm just going to get to the next one, and then I want to get your feedback here as well, Aisha. But we can see it's not just in SPX, it's in SPY as well. SPY is the biggest S&P 500 ETF, and we can see in red on the chart here to the right that zero DTE options expiration has been the fastest growing component of SPY as well. And again, A lot of this is institutional. Yes, retail are playing in this too, but what does this suggest to me? It suggests there's this large pocket of hot air below us. Now, I know some folks have said, what's the matter? This stuff rolls off at the end of the day. Where's the risk? The risk is that the market's being pushed up higher and higher without any reason fundamentally or from an economic perspective or just from an overall marketing market positioning perspective to warrant those upward price revisions. And when this activity slows or stops, that pocket of air is likely to be retraced to the downside. And that's the real concern is if you have this sort of irrational mania in options, which we've talked about in another video that uh, I suggest checking out on my YouTube as to why it might be happening. But in essence, it leaves the market structure more vulnerable to retrace a lot of that upside. Aisha, what do you think about the options mania? It's, 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 we've never seen anything like this. We've both been in this market watching it and, and even you know trading and investing in it for almost two decades. And there's never been anything like this. Yeah, this is a little crazy, actually. Um, so one thing to remember is that we didn't have zero-dated options for the longest time, right? So this is something that has, you know, been introduced. And um, we still don't have zero-dated options for many single stocks, and um, which is why those stocks probably aren't bid up as much as the ones that are right now. But you're absolutely right because it's by by playing this. This is it's tantamount to playing at the casino, right? And by doing what they're doing right now and pushing the prices up, we are so disconnected from the fundamentals. We're so disconnected from the underlying stock itself and the underlying stock price or the stock fundamentals, the company, that this can only end badly. I mean, you can keep doing, again, this is like a coiled spring or like the beach ball underwater. It's the same same situation where you are sort of, you know, artificially, you know, creating a situation where it, it, it's about, it will burst. 
you call it a pocket of hot air, you can call it a balloon that will, we should call it a balloon that will burst given all the balloon activity that's been going around in the last <laughs> few weeks. Um, so, yeah, but it's it's a scary phenomenon. And at some point, it will be exactly like taking a pin to a balloon. You remember when Lotto Fridays were just on Friday? It's like every day now. Lotto every day. It's it's extraordinary. I mean, this is really like a total change of character. It's just like you said, we never had a situation where there were options for so many instruments, particularly these indices and ETFs, expiring every single day. And it does amplify the opportunity to be able to participate in the market with a high degree of leverage and have no overnight carry cost at the same time. This has totally changed a lot of dynamics. And what it's quite frankly allowed these participants to do, particularly on the instant institutional side is participate without the rising cost of margin, without the rising cost of running that leverage, because you're closing your book out every single day. And that's allowed them to, in in essence, skirt tighter monetary policy, at least in the here and now. That's not a good thing. It's quite frankly, as Aisha said, it's like a coiled spring and the energy that's coiling up is not positive energy, but negative energy in terms of price discovery. And this is one that I wanted to include because some folks during my prior presentation sort of asked, well, how do you know that it's all sort of calls, right? Or or how do you know this isn't a lot of put volume that's going through the options market? Well, this is how we know because the data shows us very clearly that call volume is the largest component of this options mania. And the last Fed day was the largest amount of call volume we've ever seen. And if you look at the, la- the the prior two spikes, this was February of 2021, which was the mania that we saw during the short covering charts just presented earlier, and then November of 2021. These were both short covering rallies and options mania. Now, if I had to put together a guess as to part of what's happening here, when some folks get really, really short... And we start to see that fee rates are going up and shares are difficult to borrow. There are other institutions that prey on that. And the way they prey on that is inducing a delta squeeze in a very, very shorted stock. And the way you do that is you essentially see someone coming in with a lot of money near or same dated options close to the money and they push share prices higher and higher until they reach an inflection point of pain where shorts begin to cover. Then you have momentum traders. They see these gains. They see the stock making new highs, you know, on the day. They see that, uh, you know, there's a, a chart that looks like it's putting in some kind of reversal and they get involved and that adds to the pain of shorts. So then more shorts covered. It just sort of becomes this feedback loop, but it's not natural upward price discovery. Right. And so that's part of what we're seeing. The other part of it is a sentiment indicator. People, including institutions and especially institutions, are just a little bit too excited. Now, the reasons for their excitement could vary, but what this chart suggests is that the options mania that we've just discussed is particularly heavy on the call side. And that's another danger sign because we all remember what happened after February and November of 2021. And just for folks out there that aren't familiar, February of 2021 wasn't just the highest call volume ever. It was also the highest amount of call premium ever bought in single stocks. November of 2021 beat that record with the highest amount of call premium ever bought in single stocks. But then there was another component that was quite curious, and that was the highest amount of put premium ever sold. 
against single stocks. Essentially, positioning then was suggesting that there's no way the market can go lower. We're in a new paradigm. We can only go higher from here. And that marked a top in a lot of small and mid-cap growth stocks. So this time isn't likely to be different. And I see this as a huge red flag. What do you think? Absolutely so. And you know what's interesting is when you when you said that people ask you this question, how do you know? This just tells me that they don't know enough about this market to be able to trade it this way. Because how can you not know? How can you not know that it's call options driving up the price? It couldn't be put options. It has to be calls. So it's quite interesting that people are sort of jumping into these kind of uh, instruments without actually knowing what they're doing and uh, how they're trading it. I'm not saying everybody is ignorant. Of course not. There are people who know how to trade options, retail, you know, uh, traders, and some of them trade options better than me, in fact, I'm sure. But at the same time, you still have a large number of people who are, as you rightly point out, piling into these names because they think they see something and they think they see something that is fundamentally driving up these companies, but they're actually not. They're missing the point because many of these names, some that you know we've covered in the last couple of weeks, for example, um, Etsy, for example, Crocs, for example, DoorDash, none of these companies have a good thesis. None of these companies should be seeing stock prices that the, the way they are. So, there is a huge disconnect between Carvana, Bed Bath & Beyond. I mean, <laughs> these are companies on the brink of bankruptcy. Now, yes, I know there are people in the world who love to trade bankruptcy debt or who love to trade companies when they're going bankrupt, but those are specialized people. These are specialized outfits and hedge funds who know what they're doing. They calculate these risks and then they take a position. This is not the same. I agree. We are punting. We are taking a bet here. We means the retailers, the retail investors. We are simply looking at a chart or looking at people piling in, as you rightly said, momentum, and we're jumping on the bandwagon. But the problem with this kind of momentum is it's not supported by actual activity. And then at some point, when the momentum does reverse, it could reverse very, very quickly, causing something like a crash. Yeah. And all of this sort of gives me the idea that many people are just trading blind. I have to agree. And I think you made a really good point. Like if people don't see this, what are they looking at? I mean, you can just visualize the options chain in your broker and you can see this activity and it's extraordinary. And it's the sort of stuff that we haven't really seen since November of 2021 and February of 2021. And we both know that well, we traded that market. We were able to take advantage of some of these options driven squeezes and they were fun and they were lucrative, but the party ends and it usually ends really badly, particularly for the people that are very excited as these moves are beginning to get exhausted. And so for folks out there that don't believe, you know, this is driven by options, please go and look at the options chain. You can see it. Most brokers, if you have permission to trade options in the data, you can see this stuff happening on especially the very near dated and, and zero day options that are being traded. When you see insane amounts of volume pouring into some of these strikes and price moving towards that, that's a big clue. 
this is just incredible. I mean, really, options now account for about 70% of all notional trading activity every day. And you can see it. You can see it in the chart. You know, it's it, it, this is not healthy. This is not okay. This is actually really dangerous because the options participants, they are using leverage. So therefore, they're more sensitive to price. They are also using shorter dated options, which means time is not on their side. So they're very sensitive to theta. So that means folks are going to be getting in and out of this stuff much more faster, much more reactively, reflexively. And that exacerbates tail risk in both directions, but particularly with everything else we've discussed. To the left, we've got a morbidly obese left tail with all that we're talking about here. And this chart helps to drive part of that home because we really have the tail wagging the dog. This has become a casino. This is unbelievable. Um, so the, I, I really didn't think that, you know, this is what I'd be seeing when I when I saw this chart. It was a pretty chart, but wow. <laughs> um, we have most of the activity right now is options, whether it's single stocks or EDFs or index options. I think we have about, what, 30, 70% of the market yeah. is driven by options now. Wow. Yeah. This is crazy. It is. And I, I think it's just it's just adding to the kinds of risks that we have that are that are not necessarily being factored for or priced in. And this is why we want to do the sort of work that we're doing at Macrovisor, because we want to tie together all these disparate pieces of the puzzle to paint the big picture in a way that anyone can understand what's going on. That's our goal. That's why we created this. And that's why we're doing this presentation, because we think that we're on the cusp of a dislocation in the markets that is driven by a lot of this extraordinary activity. Here's a different look. Real rates are rising near their recent highs, and this could put some pressure on equities, and we're going to look at why here in the next chart. Stock valuations and real rates are diverging in a really meaningful way. Aisha, I want you to talk more about this because you are undoubtedly the best fundamentals expert I've ever met, and I know you have some views as to what this may mean. Sure. So this is actually quite interesting because the real rates shown here, um, it's actually inverted. So what you're actually seeing is real rates going higher, right? And it, when we value stocks on an intrinsic value basis, um, actually any asset, it's not just stocks. So when you value bonds, when you, when you value other assets as well, like real estate, other asset classes, so it's all done based on rates. And when you have rates going up, you have the value um, of the asset coming down because the rates are the denominator and the cash flows coming out of the asset are, is the numerator. So obviously, if the denominator is increasing and your cash flows remain the same, what you'll see is you know valuations coming down. Now, we're in a situation where we're actually seeing cash flows even decrease. So you have the numerator or the upper part of the equation coming down. You have the denominator or the lower part of the equation going up, which is kind of squeezing everything even more. So there's no reason to believe that valuations or stock valuations or asset valuations will do well when rates are rising. 
and where, uh, you know, cash flows are concerned. And when you have companies that have no cash flows or declining cash flows to zero, you have an even more dire situation here, right? So I think it's something to keep in mind that, you know, I, I know that people do understand this on a broad level, but we're still not done. And with rates going up further and further, we're going to see values come down. Now, you mentioned something very important here that I just want to uh, talk about a little bit here. You mentioned that companies with no cash flows are really going to be hurt the most in an environment of, of rising real rates. And yet those are the companies that are the most aggressively bid year to date, creating an outsized amount of concentrated risk in those sort of long duration, unprofitable growth stocks. Do you want to speak a little bit to that about how risky that part of the market really is right now with where we are in the credit cycle, with what's happening with rates and with how their borrowing costs are surging? Sure. So this is yet another reason why we're saying that the markets are disconnected from the fundamentals, right? So because we are seeing these kind of companies sort of uh, rally in the face of deteriorating fundamentals, uh, deteriorating cash flow. So it's not just that the cash flows are negative, they're becoming even more negative because the cost of capital is rising. So their cost of borrowing is rising. Many of these companies, smaller companies, they borrow on floating rates, so their interest costs are rising. Um, there's also a matter of inflation. So let's not forget that there's still wage inflation in the system, right? And a lot of the re much of the reason that these companies are cutting staff is not because, you know, they want to drastically cut costs only, but they're cutting costs because the costs are going up. So wage rates are going up and they can't afford the higher wage rates. So everything combined, we're in a situation where, you know, the, the tightness is coming from every angle. So it's coming from inflation, it's coming from higher rates, it's coming from cash flows being squeezed. And therefore, when you see companies, you know, rally based on nothing, you have to ask yourself, is this sustainable? And I, I have to think the resounding response to that inquiry is no. Next up, I we have... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really, really, uh, this stuff is extraordinary. And I'm really glad we have the opportunity to bring this out to everyone because tying all these pieces together is exactly how we can build a more concrete macro and fundamental thesis about just where may th things may go. It's something we plan to continue covering here at Macrovisor. Deterioration in fundamentals is another risk that's building. We alluded to that a little bit in the prior chart and what Aisha was talking about. But Aisha, I wanted to, to get your opinion on this because, again, you are an expert in fundamentals. I've not met anyone that can read a balance sheet like you can, and I'm always impressed by your acumen. So when we start to look at this chart, for example, we can see that we're in an earnings recession, something that you've been accurately predicting now for months, and it's likely to get worse before it gets better, right? Yes. So unfortunately, what we're seeing now is um, an earnings decline quarter over quarter. Um, and that's reached about, I think, 4.7%, negative 4.7%, if I'm not mistaken. Now, there has been some improvements coming in from... Um, Energy earnings, energy earnings have gone up over 50%. 
yet we're seeing an overall decline in the S&P earnings year on year. So this just tells you that all that that 50% improvement or increase in the energy sector is not at all offsetting or isn't offsetting uh, the other earnings decline at all. So we're looking at a negative situation now. And what's more is um, the interesting part is it's not just that it's turned negative for the first time, but it's we're also seeing uh, forward earnings turn negative. So estimates for the next quarter, so quarter one, 2023, and the following quarter, quarter two, 2023, has also turned negative. So we're seeing a situation where we'll have back-to-back quarters of negative earnings, and that constitutes an earnings recession. So it's not good. The situation isn't great, and we expected this. We've been talking about this for the last six months. We were early when we started talking about this, but I think we've been warning about this adequately. And the problem with having an earnings recession is that it's bound to pull the market down further. And it's interesting, too, because this is happening during a time that's a lot different than what we've seen really for over a decade. That is to say that now we have an earnings recession while there's also an opportunity in fixed income. That doesn't mean rates might not go higher. They likely will as the Fed further tightens. But what it means is that, you know, people in these older age groups, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, that have money in their retirement, they're money managers and even their own inclination is to say, wait a minute, you're telling me I can earn 5% with six month duration in US treasuries? Why wouldn't I do that? You're telling me I could earn 6% getting into AAA corporate debt? Why wouldn't I do that? There's so many pockets of opportunity with much less downside risk for one's capital that you just get paid to sit in. I mean, we even talked about this with money markets. You can earn over 4% just parking your money in a liquid money market account and you can get out anytime you want. So there's increasing competition for equities. The Tina trade or the there is no alternative trade is off the table. Next up, we have leading economic indicators suggesting that we're heading towards recession 10 months in a row of negative prints here. And as you pointed out prior, from 1960 forward, every time we see these print, you know, six months in a row of negative indication, we we have a recession. We've got 10 months in a row now. And that suggests that with everything else we're seeing, the earnings recession, the slowdown in new orders and other leading economic indicators, consumers that are stressed where 40% of American households are struggling to pay their bills and two-thirds are living paycheck to paycheck. Credit card debt is surging as the rate of savings is dwindling and excess savings are falling as well. This doesn't paint a pretty picture for an economy where last quarter's GDP print was led high by unsustainable factors like a growth in inventory, such as um, exports falling but less than imports, and then non-defense government spending jumping 11%, where the consumer only accounted for 2.2%, two-tenths of a percent of that total 2.9% print. And in a healthy economy, consumption makes up two-thirds of GDP. So we're not in a healthy economy. The drivers of upside in GDP have been unsustainable factors, and Everything is flashing warning signs that we're headed towards a recessionary environment, something that the market is not even pricing in. I think that amplifies some of the risk. I think that, you know, as we both said, 
the macro does matter. Absolutely. So all of this, these are leading indicators, right? And so it's very important to, you know, take note of these things because I know uh, people seem to think that many of these items or many of these data points don't matter. You know, things are, you know, changing up and down in every which way. But the point is to take a step back and look at it on a broader basis. And then when you look at it on a broader basis, so for example, in this chart where we're seeing it come in from the year 2000 until 2023, now we're seeing a pattern, right? And so when we take a step back, we get to see these patterns. Now, one price or one indicator change doesn't make a trend. And so what we need to look for is that trend. And everything that we've been seeing throughout 2022 has been forming a new trend, a trend that mimics 2001-2002 and 2008-2009. Now, the other thing to remember is these trends, they start to form long before the market actually breaks down. So if you look at the great financial crisis, yes, we saw the market collapse in 2008 because of a Bear Stearns or a Lehman Brothers or, you know, some big event of that sort. So even between Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, we had, what, a good six, eight months, right? And so you have a situation where you might have one event, like a Bear Stearns, and then you might not have anything for quite a while. And then you just have another huge event that sort of tips the dominoes over. Right. But if you look back at the anatomy of the great financial crisis and you try to analyze everything that's happened then or even the dot com bubble, what you'll notice is these trends and these issues started to form well before, perhaps two to three years before. Right. So the dot com bubble didn't happen overnight. It started to form in the late 90s. Um, The great financial crisis started to form around 2005, 2006. Okay. Now, the issue with these two is, and particularly the great financial crisis, I think the severity of the great financial crisis um, was extreme because it was in the making for three years. I doubt we see that kind of severity. I think we do see uh, more downside from here, but I don't think we see the kind of severity we saw during the great financial crisis. And part of the reason for that is because the making of this has been shorter. So the, the lead in time has been shorter, but I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that we're done. I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that there's going to be no landing. I don't even know what no landing means. This is something (laughs) that we've just started to make up. Um, You know, look, something you have to understand about the financial world, we love to make up new stuff because we want to sound edgy. We want to sound smart. We want to sound, you know, something. I don't know. But there's nothing called no landing, right? So you either have a soft landing, which is you skirt recession and a high level of employment, unemployment, sorry, 
or you have a hard landing where you have a higher level of unemployment and you are actually in a recession. So <clears throat> it's either or. It, there can be something called no landing. So I, I don't subscribe to this theory of no landing. I think some somebody dreamt it up because they wanted to sound different. But I think we're going to be in a situation where we still see inflation sticky to a certain level, maybe 4% or thereabout. Um, and we see unemployment go up, but still remain within decent levels. The bigger fear, I think, for me is the GDP. And I do think we see, we touch, uh, you know, negative territory. Yeah, I have to agree. I think we are at risk for a meaningful recession. We've had something like 14 years of near emergency level monetary stimulus with pockets of fiscal stimulus throughout, not just from the Fed, but other global central banks. It's created this real dislocation from what the market's been pricing in versus what's really been happening underneath the surface. This has not been a period of robust economic growth, but if you look at the stock market during this period of time, you would think that, wow, this is one of the best periods that we've ever seen in human history. But the reality is this might be one of the largest synchronized multi-asset bubbles that we've ever seen in human history. And crypto, I'm looking at you too, because that has been a big part of this as well. And look, it's nothing against the crypto community, but I do think that this stuff just like growth stocks and some of the other assets that are completely departed from reality, I think they're going to get hurt the most. And folks who know me know that I made the, I went out on a limb in January. It was January 4th of 2022 when Neil Kashkari said that the Fed was going to do aggressive QT that would be more aggressive than what we saw in 2018 and that the Fed tightening would also be more aggressive. I went on a limb and I said that I think growth and crypto would be hurt the most during this period of time. They both went down about 70% from peak to trough after I said that. And I think that we can double down on that same prognosis because nothing's been fixed. If anything, the risks have risen quite a bit for anything that, that either doesn't make money or is purely speculative. Look, if I'm a risk manager and someone's long this stuff, I'm going to tap them on the shoulder during downside pressure and say, you need to get rid of some of your long exposure. Maybe you want to do it in the most speculative parts of your portfolio where you don't even know what this stuff is worth. And I think that's been part of this sort of global harmonized deleveraging process that we've seen, but we're nowhere near done yet. We're, we're sort of in this period of time right now where we're living in la-la land because of these exogenous factors, the temporary burst in central bank liquidity, the zero DTE options trading, retail getting long, CTAs and managed money getting long. This stuff, and not to mention the short covering, it's a, it's, it's a powder keg and we're just waiting for that spark. Next up, I know a lot of people like to say, well, everyone's so bearish. The reality is that's not true. And we can already see it in the positioning. We've talked about that, but let's talk about sentiment. The average percentile of sentiment indicators is not even close to bearish. We're pretty neutral here, maybe a bit bullish. This is not where we see market bottoms form. This is where in the prior bear market rallies, we saw tops form. And we are at the same levels we saw during spring of 2022, which suggests pretty strongly that we are near or at an extreme during a bear market counter trend rally. This is another coalescing indicator 
that confirms our theory that no, people aren't that bearish. People are getting more bullish, and that's a little bit of a danger sign too, because what we're really looking for in a bear market rally, if you're trading it as a swing trader, is extremes. You're looking at extremes of selling pressure, of exhaustion, of sentiment, of positioning that give you an opportunity for some kind of bounce. All those extremes have been worked off and then some. And that's not a good sign for this market. So I think that's something to take into consideration because deleveraging remains the name of the game. Here's a chart of margin debt versus the Wilshire 5000. I know the Wilshire 5000 sounds exotic. It's anything but. It's actually the largest composite of U.S. stocks that is available. So it's a great thing to put in contrast with margin debt because we can see that typically they follow the same path. And when margin debt heads lower, it typically drags the market down with it. So we're continuing to see institutional and speculative deleveraging But the market is defying gravity and moving higher while this is all happening. Now, some could say, but isn't this a good sign that more people are getting long? Well, if we consider how that's happening, the extremes we've already reached, I'd say no, it's not. And the margin margin exposure tends to be smart money. And when they're deleveraging, particularly because rates are rising, that is likely to pull the market lower. I don't think this time is going to be different. What do you think? This is actually a very interesting divergence. And uh, when I first saw this chart, it, it kind of struck me as, you know, really, really uh, funny that, you know, we're seeing this kind of a divergence in the market. Usually you have one follow the other, right? But this divergence seems to suggest that, yes, there will be more deleveraging. And I think this is exactly what we've been saying throughout this presentation, that the market is being driven up based on nothing, let's say. <laughs> and this this is yet more proof of that. It is. And it's just another eye opener. And the reason that we're putting this all together is because one of the things that we look at at Macrovisor and at the sister company that we co-founded TraderAid is convergence. We want to see themes that we can replicate across multiple different metrics. And boy, oh boy, are we seeing those themes? And that's one of the reasons that we're rising these, we're we're kind of putting up these red flags here for folks in the audience to look at, not to suggest about what you should do with your positioning or how you should trade, but just to provide an educational and informational context for what's happening, why it's happening, and how it might matter for price discovery moving forward. And this is the part where we look at the pocket of central bank liquidity that has been entering the market from the People's Bank of China and the Bank of Japan. We've also had Grandma Yellen opening the Treasury purse and spending the Treasury general account in excess of $150 billion a month, adding to that liquidity, adding to bank reserves at a time where, you know, really all of this is fighting the Fed. This is a uh, situation where the Fed and ECB policies are not as efficacious because we're not seeing those policies really being effectuated with how liquidity is flowing. We can see the Bank of Japan and the People's Bank of China have been actually contributing an extraordinary amount of liquidity into this market. In fact, the People's Bank of China just did a record liquidity injection into their financial markets. And there are problems over there. They're not injecting this liquidity to start a new bull market. They're injecting this liquidity because there are serious economic imbalances there. And there's very serious problems in their real estate market, which by the way, if you weren't familiar with this, the Chinese real estate market is estimated to be in excess of $60 trillion. 
And that is the largest market of any kind of market in the entire world. And it is imperiled. We've seen property sales drop significantly. We've seen drops in prices and overall construction activity. And that does suggest to us that this is a market that could have further problems. So China has reopened. That has driven some inflationary impulse throughout the world to have the largest group of the middle class kind of back online. They themselves have over $750 billion in savings. If you look at the entire Chinese population, there's well in excess of one and a quarter trillion dollars of savings just kind of waiting on the sidelines here. And as this is all happening, the People's Bank of China is injecting a record amount of liquidity. That helps as well as the BOJ trying to do, perhaps naively so, their yield curve control program focused on the 10-year Japanese government bond, anything to keep it from rising above 50 bips. This is adding liquidity to the global financial system. It's buffering the impact of the ECB and the Fed. And that's one of the reasons that we've seen this counter-trend rally be so powerful. So remember, we're talking about multiple legs here. We're talking about short covering. Talking about retail, CTA, institutional participation to the upside in shares, in futures, in options, and we're seeing part of this driven by central bank liquidity, and this is not likely to be a durable boost. All these factors are stretched and likely ephemeral in nature, and that adds to the left tail risk. Yes, and I, I think a lot of this is also a little temporary when you look at what's happening with the Bank of Japan. Um, so with PBOC, I think the we're kind of we're kind of misreading the liquidity coming into the market because the liquidity isn't really coming into this market. They have a lot of um, you know su- <laughs> sustaining to do within their own market. So. From what I understand and everything that I've read and kept up with, um, a lot of the Chinese consumers have actually paid off with debt with their excess savings. So some of that excess savings has come down. And they've also pumped some of this money um, into the local stock market over there, Okay, which is why we've seen this enormous boost in the stock market over the last couple of uh, I think months, I guess, you know, yes. for the last two months, in fact, right? So a lot of the money is being driven there and not towards consumption. So there's some travel spending going on, but I think just basic consumption has not resumed as much. And China is trying to drive some of that in order to improve their GDP. Because as we've pointed out in our previous you know, presentations and our discussions, that consumption is the healthiest form of GDP growth. And in this case... This is what China is trying to do. So they're pumping the money in, A, to prop up their property market because people are not buying property anymore. They, you know, after the scare of, you know, Evergrande and few of the other property companies, um, most of these people have paid off their debt and they're not buying property anymore. So, you know, the government needs to prop up that market somewhat. And then the other uh, side of it is to increase consumption. Now, um, with the way China handles their finances, they don't really give stimulus packages to people like the U.S. did. Um, instead, they pump into the state and local governments for job creation. So they're trying to create more jobs that will create, you know, jobs with higher, create more jobs or increase the pay of existing jobs so that people earn more money and spend more. 
So it's slightly different where the PBOC is concerned. And I think people are sort of misreading this a little bit when it comes to thinking that a lot of that money is being pumped into the U.S. stock market. Some of it is for sure. There is some bond buying going going on over there and all of that. But I think largely what we're seeing is the Bank of Japan's uh, liquidity, which is flowing through to this side of the world. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And, you know, we also can't discount that what's happening at the Treasury General account, that drawdown is also temporary in nature. It's likely to slow and eventually abate, especially once we resolve the debt ceiling kabuki theater, which is not a real (laughs) crisis, but a manufactured crisis and a self-imposed crisis. There's no actual (laughs) debt ceiling. It's a legislative imperative that was put in place to try to constrain spending. And we can see that it hasn't done a very good job because we're well in excess of $30 trillion of debt, and now they need to raise that imaginary ceiling higher to keep the spending going. And once they do, it's likely that the Treasury will go back to raising debt and spending from that debt rather than the Treasury general account. And we see that the Fed terminal rate is pricing in an upper bound level of about 5.5% to be achieved probably at the June meeting. And this is a bit of a concern because what this suggests to us is that what the market's been pricing in for the longest time, really two weeks ago, the market was looking at 5% as the upper bound terminal rate and 5.5% was seen with a probability of, uh, I think it was about 2%. Now it's being seen with a reasonably high probability over 70%. And what's that telling us? It's telling us that the Fed's mantra of higher for longer is now finally to some degree being taken seriously by more savvy parts of the market. That's also one of the reasons that the six-month bill has seen so much selling that its rate has hit 5%, because now the bond market isn't arguing with the Fed. And I do remember not long ago, a lot of very smart people were saying the bond market is telling the Fed they can't hike anymore. Well, now the bond market's given the Fed the green light to hike some more. And I think that's something that's important for us to take into consideration because I don't think, and I know you don't think, that we're anywhere near the end of this tightening cycle. No, I don't think we are. Now, I mean, to begin with, I was wrong. I thought (laughs) the Fed wouldn't hike above four and a half, but it looks like they've surpassed my expectations. Um, I did, however, change or upgrade um, my price target on the Fed, uh, the terminal rate to five and a quarter thereafter. Based on everything that's going on and based on the way, you know, inflation was coming down. Um, and I still think five and a quarter is a good target rate for them. I think they might do another quarter percent increase, which would take them to five and a half. And this I'm talking like, you know, for the upside. So that would probably be where they stall. I know that people are talking about 6% now. I know Jamie Dimon said it could go to 6%. And what could go to 6% are the bond rates, treasury rates. But I think the Fed funds kind of stops at five and a quarter to five and a half. Now, what do you think if we see a little bit of a different outcome with the econometrics pertaining to inflation? What if inflation stops going down and actually begins to perk up as we get closer to the end of this year, maybe during the second half of this year? Do you think that might change policy trajectory if we start to see that maybe policy isn't effectuating the outcome that the Fed wants to see? I don't think so. And I don't think so because... Um, by then we would see the actual effect of QT as well. So I don't think the 
Fed can keep tightening into oblivion. I think we will have a situation where uh, inflation will come back for a little while. Um, it's bound to happen. It's happened in the past and it will happen again. This is how it works. This is just simply how it works. And then we have, you know, the global situation where China's reopening and obviously that will drive a lot of, uh, you know, demand for commodities. And when that happens, you'll obviously see somewhat, you know, of that you know, inflation come through to the U.S. as well. So I think we will see a comeback in inflation. This is, you know, a given. But I don't think the Fed will hike above 6% or so because the economy just won't be able to take it. Plus, I think the QT is what will sort of drive your treasury rates higher, right? So they don't need to, in effect, they don't need to increase the Fed fund rate above that level. And that's why, you know, I'm stopping at five and a quarter, five and a half. Now, I've been wrong in the past. I can be wrong again, for sure. But I think that's where they stop because then when QT has its effects, you will see like another one, one and a half, maybe even 2% over and above that. So, and you will see mortgage rates close to like eight, nine, maybe even 10% at that point because you will see, um, you know, the longer end rates slightly, you know, pick up slightly more, you'll see the issue with mortgage-backed securities. So the housing market will get enormous pressure from, you know, mortgage rates going up further. And then that will sort of have a domino effect and increase rates overall as well. So I think um, what people are not talking about enough right now is the QT. And that is something that you and I have been discussing a lot because we really don't know, as you rightly point out every time, that we really don't know where this ends. And there's speculation that, you know, it could add two, two and a half. It could add one, one and a half. We don't know because we've never seen it. We've never seen this situation. We've never seen this kind of aggressive runoff, you know, so... I think that remains to be seen. That remains kind of a wild card over here or like, you know, a question mark. But that will basically, you know, increase the overall level of interest rates in the economy, which will sort of be enough to have the effect that the Fed wants. Break demand. Yes. So demand is already breaking. But the really... issue will be, yeah, but the issue will really be from what you have always been pointing out, which is the supply side, right? Yes. So we're going to have another bout of supply side inflation. And the only way for the Fed to control that is through demand, but they can't do much more than what they are doing at this point, right? So you can't say that the Fed will increase to seven or eight. I know Bullard is saying this, but I don't know what he's smoking, but. We can't have that kind of rates. I think QT will take care of that differential that will be required to bring inflation down. And let's talk about QT a little bit in the context of where we were and how we got here, because I think it's important. We've never seen this level of intervention. We've never seen this amount of aggressive monetary policy, and it's gone on for the better part on and off for over a decade. So the amount of stimulus that's been added to the global financial system, not just by the Fed, but by central banks around the world, is nothing short of extraordinary. And the UK House of Lords did a study 
about QE, asking the question, is QE a dangerous addiction? And one of the takeaways was that there's never been a normalization of any central bank, their balance sheet, post-QE. And of course, this is a new and experimental policy framework, so we're kind of in the early days of seeing this. But again, it's all very experimental. Now, what happened during the last bout of quantitative tightening was it led us to that outcome in December of 2018, where the market dropped about 19% in a month. And a lot of that was attributed to the runoff of the balance sheet, which back then was far less aggressive than what we're seeing now. So I think you make a very good point that the other item that isn't getting discussed enough is quantitative tightening. And the Fed has recently come out, there was a study that said that they actually want to continue to run down the balance sheet even as they do their first rate cuts, which would be extraordinary. And it would be almost offsetting a little bit, but it also sets us up for that future that you alluded to, one where there's an imbalance on the supply side that exists even to this day. And that is to say that once we get to the next credit cycle, once rates begin to come down, Once demand begins to come back, we simply do not have enough supply of labor, of energy, raw materials, agriculture, or other key components of this economy to move forward without bumping our head against aggressive inflationary pressure again. And what that then suggests is, A, the leadership during that next cycle might be old economy stocks. It might be the companies that are producing energy, raw materials, and agriculture because they'll be in an advantageous position. But it also suggests that cycle could be shorter and the bull market could be more shallow because central banks are likely to have to intervene earlier to get their arms around another bout of inflation, which is driven by that disequilibrium between supply and demand. So we're entering a different era. It could be one where it's not anything like the sort of disinflationary or low inflation situation that we had for the prior two decades. This may be what we're seeing, the beginning of structural inflation beginning to take Take hold, And there's one way out, and that way out would be the fiscal side stops stimulating demand with inflation relief checks and ironically named legislature like the Inflation Relief Act, which only adds to demand, and actually comes in and tries to increase supply. Supply-side economics are very important for us to be able to reach a point where we're not living in a resource-constrained world, where we go away from this era of scarcity, scarcity of capital, scarcity of resources, scarcity of labor. But the only way we can do that is to improve supply. And on the labor side, it's quite simple. We could improve our immigration policy. And on the supply side, it's not as simple, but we could at least try to encourage companies to explore and produce more energy and raw materials to engage in more sustainable, larger yielding agricultural practices. There are paths out of this. This is not a, a Gordian knot that cannot be untangled. It's a matter as to whether there's the will and the cognizance to tackle these issues before they become even more entrenched. And we know that when the Fed tightens, they often break something. And Aisha, I'd like to joke that the Fed has a two-policy mandate. Rather than stable employment and inflation or maximum employment and price stability, the two-policy mandate seems to be one of creating bubbles and then destroying bubbles. And part of that might have to do with policy lags. It's very difficult to, to navigate a market and an economy when your policy impacts may not be realized for months or sometimes even over a year. So that might give us a little room to forgive some of the errant monetary policy overreaches on the tightening and loosening side. But what it does tell us is it's likely to happen again. And it's not just our humble opinion. 
Chair Powell has come out and directly said exactly this, that he's concerned that if they don't do enough to fight inflation, that it will become entrenched, right? So he's willing to over-tighten because, as he says, they have the tools to correct for what that might bring about, sort of gently hinting that if or possibly when the Fed induces a recession with their aggressive tightening, that they're willing to come in and try to kind of stabilize and support the economy, but also suggesting that the path this time is not different than prior situations where over-tightening is likely to be the outcome. What do you think? It's interesting. And um, this chart is actually very interesting. I'm a little disappointed that continental Illinois hasn't been, um, you know, highlighted in this chart, because that was actually something that was uh, quite pivotal during, you know, Volcker's time. You know, I've been reading a biography and or autobiography, and, you know, he mentions that as quite a pivotal moment, um, because of the situation where they didn't have enough reserve balances, where they didn't have capital. And that that's basically where the whole, you know, the LATAM crisis came in and, you know, capital adequacy ratios came in and all of that. It's quite interesting. But um, yes, this chart and everything that we've seen in the past seems to suggest one thing, um, and that is we do need a crisis for the Fed to sort of reverse course. now. Where that crisis will begin, we don't know. But what we do know from the past is that when that crisis does begin, things will unfold very quickly. Um, Whether we see a crisis or not remains to be seen. Um, But if you ask me the way uh, the aggressiveness of the Fed and the way they've been raising and tightening and, you know, QT and everything combined... I think we do see something unfold, but when and when it does, it will unfold very quickly. And that's one of the things, you know, and I think there was a quote, and, and you probably know it better than I do, but sort of the process of bankruptcy or failure starts slowly and then everything kind of happens at once, right? We see this acceleration. And that's that's what we're setting up for is a sort of dramatic dislocation. Now, again, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know if or when this happens, but what we can say is from a probabilistic standpoint, which is all we can look at as traders and investors is probabilities. And we want to align ourselves on the right side of those probabilities. This is setting up for something that could be rather nasty. The probabilities are pointing to that economic and financial dislocation. And the Fed's pivot, which is something that everyone keeps talking about as if that's the path to salvation for risk assets, may not be what people think it could be. That is to say, going all the way back to the 1960s and 70s and 80s, all the way through, every time we see that Fed pivot, it, it typically leads to a less than desirable outcome in risk assets. And why? Well, that's because when the Fed is pivoting, they're pivoting because something is not going well. And that's putting it mildly. Often is the case that when the Fed pivots, there's an economic and or financial dislocation happening. And that's why there's further downside after that pivot. The Fed is saying, hey, things aren't going so well. 
We need to shift from tightening to loosening, but it's not as if they can front run the crisis because as we just discussed, there are lagged policy impacts. So by the time the Fed does their first cut, the problem has already metastasized. It's already become something that's going to drag down the prices of various asset classes. And I know there are different views about this. I've heard folks say that, oh, this time is going to be different. I will just say that I think from a historical contextual perspective, it's not likely to be different because A, the Fed isn't going to pivot when the labor market's tight or we're in a soft landing scenario. The Fed is more likely to pivot during a hard landing and a hard landing portends to a situation where stock prices, real estate prices, bond prices are falling or the economy is slowing or already in a grinding recession type of environment. And we don't see that yet. So A, there's no reason for them to pivot it in the short term. If anything, there's reason for them to continue moving rates higher. But secondly, when we do inevitably reach that point where the Fed's going to pivot, it's much more likely because something bad is happening. That's caught their attention. And they've said, you know what? We need to intervene. So looking at the Fed pivot or the pause or any of these things as this is the turning point or this is the bottom, I would caution those that are embracing that perspective because history suggests very strongly that that's not likely to be the case. Absolutely. And it's very, very clear. This point is very clear throughout history that, you know, um, once the Fed pivots, the market actually, you know, goes down another leg. And we, we've seen that in the past. Will this time be different, as you say? I don't know. And nobody knows that. But if history is any guide, we need to be cautious. 100% agree. And one of our last charts here, and I wanted to just bring back the conversation to quantitative tightening. So these are the total assets of the Fed, ECB, and Bank of Japan in dollars on the blue line, the S&P 500 in red. We can see there's been that little perk back up in January from the Bank of Japan, and that's helped to boost equity markets higher as well as some of the other factors we've discussed. But even here, the path of least resistance for the total assets of these key central banks is lower, and that is likely to lead risk assets like the S&P 500 and other stocks lower as well. This is why the conversation about QT is so important, because even when the Fed reaches their ultimate rate plateau, they're still running down their balance sheet. The ECB is likely to join the party in March, which means that we're going to see QT from two very systemically important central banks. The Bank of Japan's leadership is set to change in April, and while the new leadership still believes their policy should be easy, I have trouble believing that the same level of sort of Kuroda madness is going to continue. That clip of BOJ upside liquidity participation may be tempered just a little bit. Maybe they expand the acceptable rate range for the 10-year bond, for example, in Japan, which would necessitate less intervention. That would be a reasonable outcome. And certainly, I think you and I both agree that price discovery is a good thing, and we should probably have some degree of it in financial markets if we want to call them markets. But net-net, what this suggests is that as these global central banks run down their balance sheet, the path of least resistance for the S&P 500 is meaningfully lower. And that's why when we talk about a pause or a pivot, if the, the central banks are still running down their balance sheets even during that moment, it's not going to be a good thing for stocks, particularly the longer duration risk that's been really aggressively bid up to start this year. It instead suggests that as long as central banks are running down their balance sheets, 
in aggregate that we still see more downside pressure for risk assets. And I think that's one of the reasons that just focusing myopically on rates and their trajectory, which has been the dominant conversation for so long, is missing the forest for the trees. QT probably matters just as much, if not more, than where the Fed funds rate goes. But let's just talk about those rates for a second, too. Even when the Fed does reach their ultimate upper bound terminal rate of maybe five and a quarter, five and a half, who knows, maybe 6%, there are cumulative tightening impacts, something that Lael Brainerd's talked about. And she's right in the sense that every day rates stay high, there's a greater impact on the consumer. There's a greater impact on businesses and on governments. And that net impact is destruction of demand. When the cost of capital stays high, more and more people are taking on new debt or refinancing at a higher cost. Or if they have revolving credit, it's just automatically bumping higher. All that suggests that the longer that rates stay high, that impact in and of itself is still tightening and then add QT to that equation. So this is yet another reason why it kind of bothered me, why, um, you know, markets are bullish on European equities, because as you've rightly pointed out, we're going to see QT over there as well very soon. and. There are various charts where you can compare um, the market to, uh, you know, the size of the balance sheets, but you can also more directly compare revenue per share of the, you know, biggest indices. So, for example, the SPX or the stocks uh, of 600. And what you see is revenue per share comes down, albeit with a little bit of a time lag, but it comes down when, uh, or rather, it's been going up all this time because of the balance sheet going up. And therefore, when the reverse is going to happen, you're going to see, you know, revenues come down. It's it's just normal. The level of liquidity reducing in the economy will mean less money to buy stuff. It, it's not very challenging to understand. And so I don't understand why people are still bullish of these companies or bullish of these stocks where we're yet to see what happens in Europe. Another thing you pointed out, the, the level of liquidity, the level of aggregate money supply going down, there's less money to buy stuff. There's also less money to pay the interest on debt. It suggests that there's more room for a higher rate of delinquency and defaults, which is also quite problematic for the pricing of financial assets, right? Absolutely. So this is something that, you know, I've been discussing for a while now that it's, you know, on the one hand, you have rates going up. So you'll have interest, the the absolute amount of interest going up as well, right, with floating rates. And as I've pointed out, most of these companies, or rather, let's say outside the S&P, most of the companies have floating rate debt. So what you're going to be seeing is the absolute amount of interest going up. And at the same time, you have a situation where there's less liquidity or less cash flows to cover those interest, uh, that interest expense um, on the balance sheet. So you will see negative earnings um, accordingly. And that's, that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing earnings growth come down, but soon you'll see a lot of companies dip into negative earnings territory. So where they did make 
positive EPS, they're now going to start making negative EPS. This is like the most dire situation. What percentage of companies actually dip below the zero line? That remains to be seen. But some of it is being catered to by, you know, cutting costs, but it makes me wonder how much you need to cut costs to be able to service that interest. And particularly in a time when you don't have enough cash to pay down the interest or the debt. And it, it, it's not a good sign for the consumer either, right? The consumer is the biggest driver of economic activity during a healthy economy. And yet we have two-thirds of consumers living paycheck to paycheck. We have 40% that are late on their bills. The rising cost of interest with less money in the financial system to pay it down suggests that these consumers are going to struggle a lot more as the economy begins to turn lower. And with them being the sort of primary driver of growth and really for the better part, of the last four and a half decades, that growth has been debt-driven consumption, pulling forward demand from the future into the present. That phenomenon may be ending here, at least for, say, the bottom 80% of consumers that don't have the wherewithal to spend cash reserves because simply they don't really have them to begin with. So it does suggest that we could see more fragility, both on the corporate side and the consumer side. And let's not forget that state and local governments, they're at the whims of interest rates as well when they're issuing debt. And this could constrain their ability to provide social support during a already problematic environment. So this has all been very interesting. We're going to wrap it up here because we want to be sensitive to everyone's time. We've been going at this for about two hours and it's been an epic presentation. I've really had a lot of fun doing this with you. So let's just recap it here. In conclusion, the recent bear market rally was led by short covering options, central bank and TGA liquidity, as well as retail CTAs and managed money getting aggressively long. There isn't much fuel left for further upside based on our analysis. Downside risks have grown significantly with weakening fundamentals, leading econometrics turning lower, the zero DTE mania likely on borrowed time, the Fed and ECB's tightening as well as current stretched positioning. As a result, we believe the bear market rally lives on borrowed time, and we don't know exactly when it will end, but we do believe that when it does end, it could get rather nasty for everyone out there that's been allocating long, believing this is a new bull market paradigm. So for me, I've been raising cash and adding to shorts. That's been my positioning strategy into this. And before we go, Aisha, do you have any closing thoughts for the audience? Sure. So more often than not, when we see something like this end, when we see a bear market rally end, and we see the market actually go down another leg, which means they take out the previous lows, right? Now, this didn't happen in December, but, you know, November, December, but nothing, there's nothing stopping it from doing that again. So October might, may not have been the lows in the market. And I think we need to be cautious here because we didn't see um, earnings come down during that time as much, right? So, and now we're actually seeing the companies retrench and earnings come down. So that's something that we need to keep an eye on. I think people are discounting the macro and the fundamentals too much over here. I think we're not paying enough attention to this and we really should. 
I am excited for the next bull market because I think once these companies go through this re-rating and once you know earnings come down, we'll see decent levels of PE, and we'll have you know an extremely great opportunity to invest. And so for the time being, I think playing the short term, I think we need to be careful. Um, for those of you who don't know how to short, I would suggest to stay away from it. Shorting the market is never easy. You can always get caught offside. So it's something to be wary of. If you don't know what to do, just stay out of the market. That would be, you know, my two cents. I have a huge buffer, right? And cash, I closed out a lot of my positions. And uh, I'm happy to remain this way until I find something worth buying or worth shorting because this market has been incredibly difficult to short or go long. So if you find yourself in a choppy market and you don't know how to play it, there's no harm. There's no harm staying out. That's right. There's no need to be a hero. You know, and one of the things that we plan to do both here at Macrovisor and our sister company, TraderAid, is to provide ongoing analysis and coverage about what's happening, why it matters. And when we feel like we've reached that ultimate buying opportunity, we will let our members know what we think and where those pockets of opportunity may lay. So please do stay tuned. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe to macrovisor.com. Consider becoming a member of traderaid.com. Check us out because we're putting a lot of work out on Twitter, on YouTube. Aisha has her own Substack, which is very much worth subscribing to as well. And if you need one-on-one help, if you're interested in learning more about the market from a fundamental macro and technical perspective, both Aisha and I offer one-on-one and group coaching that you can find on TraderAid.com. So stay tuned, everyone. We really appreciate you listening. We hope you found this presentation helpful and informative, and we'll be back soon to share more of our insights. 